Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. That acceptance letter into college, the one that says, you made it. You put in the time, you put in the effort. You are on your way to a college diploma. That letter is supposed to be a passport to the American dream, but for too many students, it's actually leading nowhere. I'm Keith Menconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and that's the unfortunate outcome for the four out of 10 students who make it into college, but never manage to graduate. Today's guest says that we should see that number as a scandalous waste of potential. That guest is David Kirp. He is a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley, and his new book is The College Dropout Scandal. David Kirp, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. It's good to be here. So I want to linger on that word scandal for just a second, because the story that you're telling is not a story about student incompetence or students falling down on the job academically. It's about the institutions that are there to serve them, not necessarily always being up to snuff. So tell us a little bit about that story. I think that puts it very gently, not up to snuff. So as you mentioned, 40% of students don't graduate in six years. Half of the students who go to public universities don't graduate in six years. And the figures are worse for community colleges. Um, That number hasn't budged for a good long time, despite the fact that we have the tools now to, to move the needle both on overall graduation rates and shrink the opportunity gap. And the consequence for the students who, that, that 40 or 50% of the students who don't make it are huge. Uh, they wind up graduating with not much to show for it, but a, a pile of debt. They uh, are two or three times more likely to, uh, declare, to go into default in their debt. And because they can't declare bankruptcy, that makes it really hard for them to get a car loan, a home loan. Um, there are all sorts of down-the-road implications, including eventually shorter life expectancy, all of which flowing from this one moment. Colleges could be doing something. They're not. That's the scandal. And tell our listeners a little bit about why this is something that belongs as the part of the public discourse at the moment, something that we should be considering. You know, we've already heard some presidential candidates pitch the notion that we should be spending more on decreasing the economic burden that colleges impose, either talking about getting rid of college debts or taking care of college tuition. But you're pointing our aim in a different direction. It's what do we do with people once they're in college? How do we make sure that they're successful Why is that something that we really should be focusing on in this whole conversation that we're having? Yeah, it's an an important question to ask because, as you say, most of the conversation is on college debt and free tuition. And addressing the, the budget problems, that's a real issue. But it's at least as important to understand what happens to students once they show up in college. Um... And that's not where the attention has focused. It doesn't make a great bumper sticker to talk about let's drop the, let's lower the, the dropout rate or let's shrink the opportunity gap. But that's really crucial. Uh, it's crucial for the students. And we're talking, you know, 2 million students a year are going to college. And if you do the math, we're talking about millions and millions of students. But in the last 20 years, uh, 34 million Americans have started college, spent a semester or more there, didn't get a degree. That's impressive. That's scary. Uh, And that's something that we need to pay more attention to. And you mentioned the economic costs for the students themselves in terms of lost economic opportunity. Are we looking at it from a little bit more of a a self-centered or or society-centered point of view? Are we as a society missing out too? Of course we are. Uh, We're missing out in terms of having productive um, 
people in the in the workforce, particularly in the high tech workforce that we live in now, we're missing out in other ways because the people who drop out are much less likely to be socially engaged or politically engaged. And we need robust voices to to rebuild our democracy after what's been going on for the last three years, especially. So let's talk a little bit about what it is that is preventing students from succeeding, because I think that many people who look at these numbers may think to themselves, I went through college, I did okay, I didn't get that much support, and it worked out all right for me. But it, it seems like the sense here is that it's not the student's fault. Uh, what What is really going on here to create these numbers? So it's interesting. I hear that message every time I'm talking, and I, I describe it as the, I walked uphill five miles through the snow to school, and I walked uphill five miles home from school, uh, point of view. Um, <laughs> and I think what those people are missing is that especially the kinds of students that I'm talking about, and I'm mostly focused on the big public universities, the Cal State States, the places where most American kids go to school, that those students don't have the kinds of resources, don't kind of have the kind of backing, don't have knowledgeable parents or guidance counselors who can really steer them through the process. They need help. They need assistance. And, and for that to happen, it really, the reason we know, with many reasons we know it's not students' fault, um, and I, the other line that I love from, from professors and administrators is, give us better students and we'll give you better graduation rates is that you can look at two universities, exactly the same entrance requirements and exactly the same freshman profile, they'll have very different graduation rates. And you can look at two universities with the same overall graduation rate and the gap between what I call the new gen students, that's the poor students, students from underrepresented minorities, the immigrant students uh, and the first generation students, the gap can, can range from 30 or 40% to zero. Indeed, there are a number of schools in which those new gen students graduated at a rate higher than the overall graduation rate. All of that says that there's a lot more that institutions could be doing. Hmm, right. So that suggests if there is a difference from school to school and even within schools, that it, it matters what sorts of policies the schools have in place. Absolutely. And it starts with leadership. I, one of the things that surprised me when I started into this, I just assumed that student success was every college president's top priority. I mean, what else are they, you know, what else are colleges for except to help their students succeed? And well, that turns out to be a pretty naive view because a whole bunch of other things occupy uh, the president's time, including raising money, placating alums, dealing with state lawmakers, making faculty happy, and maybe most perniciously rising up the U.S. News and World Report rankings. And I say perniciously because those rankings are partly based on how many students a university rejects, uh, whereas a student success orientation really looks at how do you how do you do the best you can with the students that you get. And so universities that have made student success a priority, they really have done this, and I write about a number of them in the book, they're really profiles and courage because they're willing to take a hit um, when it when it comes to the U.S. news rankings, and they're saying that's not what matters the most to us. Mm. The other end of the the other end of the story, there's no accountability for dropout rates. Imagine a high school that had a fifty percent or sixty percent graduation rate. That principal would be looking for a job. Teachers might be um, also uh, seeking employment elsewhere, but. Nobody gets fired in higher education because of the dropout rate. So you got to want to do it as a leader. And there are precious few of those folks. Fortunately, a number of them in the in the Cal State system, I'm happy to report. And I write about Long Beach State, which is one of the hero institutions of the book. Um, it's important for, for people who are thinking about what university to go to, to go back to that first 
point that she raised in the introduction to our, our conversation um, about, you know, get that college letter of acceptance. When you're choosing among colleges, there are all sorts of bases for making that decision. But one that students and families don't think about is how likely are you to graduate? How good a job is the university going to be doing on your behalf? All right. And I think that we're going to get into some of those success stories in just a second. But I want to first remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. That's our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we're trying to understand how it is that four out of 10 students who walk into a college in America will walk back out with no degree to show for it. Guiding us along is David Kirp. He is a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley, and his new book is The College Dropout Scandal. You mentioned those first-generation students a moment ago, the the students that don't have prior family members that have gone to college, and they're kind of on their own to figure it out for themselves. They don't have perhaps as much support as others do. Tell us the story, uh, just so we can illustrate this and help our listeners understand what exactly it is that these students are going through and why they might be running into trouble. Well, let's just start at the outset. The students have gotten an acceptance letter from college. They've even sent in a check. 20 or 25 percent of them are not ever going to make it to campus. Uh, that is, students who are going to the, you know, to the big public universities are not going to make it. And why is that? It's a phenomenon called summer melt. I always used to think that Summer melt had to do with ice cream cones that you bought and then you took them home and they were a mess. But I guess it has a very different and much more serious meaning in this context. Why might this be? Well, some of these students have decided that they really don't want to go to college yet uh, or they've got other obligations. But for many of them, they're just overburdened by the things that they are asked to do between the time they get accepted and the time they show up. And again, these are things that middle class students and families can 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 address pretty easily. But you've got to get the high school to turn in final grades. You've got to sign up for orientation. You've got to sign up for your first semester courses. And most ominously, you've got to apply for the financial aid uh, funds and getting state financial aid or federal financial aid is not an easy business because the, the forms themselves are not exactly user friendly. That makes a big difference. I, I Recently, California experimented with changing the language of the letter, which invites students to begin getting set for the application for financial aid, making that letter easier to understand made a three or four point difference in the number of students who, who took up the invitation. And just adding a sentence which says college is a great and challenging experience, just that one sentence in the letter added one or two percent more students who, uh, who signed up. So you can, you can imagine what the effect is of a student for whom this is an entirely new experience to get a letter that actually is encouraging and not ominous. That's just one example of the kind of problem that students run into. These are kids who are on their own to some considerable extent, um, and they're going to a big university. It's very easy to slip between the cracks if there isn't somebody to talk to. And that's one of the big recommendations I make in the in the book, that, that universities need to really invest heavily on smart counselors and smart advisors. The, the people who students talk about is having my back, my, my big sister, my big brother, almost like my mom. Those are the, those are the people that, that really can be a make or break experience for the, for the students. That, that's just, that's just key to this process. Without them, these students are often floundering. If they fail a first exam and they don't know where to go, they're almost certainly on their way out the door. And that's something that the university really can take steps to cut off at the pass with the kind of outreach 
counseling on the part of professors who see a student in trouble and on the part of advisors who, uh, who have access to those records. And that gets to another one of the recommendations that you make in the book, that is the importance of making students feel as though they belong in a college community. How is it that so many students are being made to feel that they don't belong in a college community? Well, if, if you think back to, to your first days on campus, and it certainly fits me, I've, you're away from home for the first time. Um, you're in an environment where, you know, there's nobody cooking your meals or, you know, washing your clothes or whatever. Um, you're living with new people uh, who you and, uh, you know, you're in this is daunting world with um, it's very easy to feel insecure, to feel like you're an imposter at that place. Um, especially, that's especially been the case for many minority students for whom, you know, the, the concerns are compounded by the fact that, that they get this message that they really aren't smart enough to make it. But students generally, students generally need to have a sense that they're not imposters, that they really can make it. And belonging to a community means, in this case, that they're able to reach out to a professor uh, without fearing that the professor is going to laugh at them or a teaching assistant, and they're going to be able to talk to classmates without being labeled as the as the dummy. Those kinds of contexts uh, are essential if students are going to succeed. And is this just another area where you feel that universities have yet to recognize the importance of taking those steps? I think that's I, I think that's right. I mean, to be fair, there are some great universities, and and. I'm a solutions guy. I mean, I teach public policy at Berkeley, and we're all about trying to solve problems. And much of the book highlights places that are doing great work. But too often, the attitude is a kind of sink or swim attitude. Um, Students, you know, you've gotten in, congratulations, now make the best of it. And uh, I think that attitude is uh, is what's got to go. Hmm. Well, let me articulate that sink or swim attitude, because I can imagine some of our listeners may have that attitude themselves. So I just want to give some voice to that. When in my last two years of college, the way that I paid for myself was I was an academic tutor. And so I don't think I was a particularly good tutor. I had a lot of struggling students and I don't know that they were that much better off after seeing me. Uh, But part of the issue was a lot of my students, I felt, just weren't putting in the time. They weren't putting in the effort. And it was definitely an institutional value at my school that anybody with the right support, including a tutor, could hack it. And you just needed to make sure that they had the right support. But a lot of kids were showing up and they just expected me to do my homework for them. So how is it that we know that this is a problem of the institutions not doing enough rather than, you know, some people are showing up that perhaps college isn't right for them? No, there certainly are some students who aren't ready for college. I think the problem is that that those students wind up being confused with all students, that all students aren't in that position. And the reason we know that, again, are those numbers that I, that I produced earlier. If you get two, two universities and the entering profile is exactly the same, same undergraduate, same high school record, same, same SAT scores, and 10 or 15 or 20 percent more of the students graduate at one school than at the other, and you get the same kind of difference in terms of minority graduation gaps. That says, well, some of this may be on the students, uh, but a lot of it is on the institution. And um, it's the institution can, can, can't can solve all the problems of the world. I know that as a professor, there is a, there's an increasing tendency in the part of this generation to, to want to have more hand-holding than, than certainly I had at the time. But again, we now have tools that can help. They're not going to get 
to 100% graduation rate, but they can certainly boost the number of students who make it through. And again, that's so important both with the students and for the rest of us. So worth, worth, worth trying, worth, worth doing everything an institution can do to say, okay, let's look at where the roadblocks are from the outset, all the way down to the end of the road, and let's see what we can do to, to remove those roadblocks. And I guess the, the flip side of that picture, which I got uh, some sense of in reading your work, is that students at the Ivies, you know, we're talking about Yale, Harvard, Stanford, they are enjoying a lot of that hand-holding at the moment. Oh, my gosh. There was a piece that I read which I loved about a student at Harvard who was talking about coddling. Of course we're coddled, he said. He, by the way, is now at grad school at Stanford, uh, where I assume he's getting more coddling yet. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you if you go to a, if you go to a school like Harvard or Stanford, you almost have to to commit um, highway robbery in order to to not make it through the institution. Uh, they'll do everything they can. Those places do everything they can to to support and help students. And and it's not as though those students don't need help. Something over half of them report feeling depressed at some point. Something over half of them are going to make an appearance at the college counselor's office sometime during the time that they're in school. So I don't know what that is, whether that has to do with changes in, in uh, the demands of life, or that has to do with uh, their own experiences growing up, and, and uh, whether that leaves them less ready to deal with the rigors of, uh, of living on their own. Not sure. But it's not as though any of us... Um, <laughs> can't do with a bit more coddling, a bit more support, a bit more help. And, and again, I think that's especially true if you put yourself in the position of somebody, there's nobody in the family that ever went to college. Um, none of the neighbors went to college. That student needs help. Um, and the help can come in a variety of forms. I mean, right from the outset in terms of programs geared for students who it's anticipated will have a particularly hard time. Um, all the way to the end, where universities are realizing that some students are dropping out in their senior year, and the reason they're dropping out is that they're short of $500 or $1,000. That's what they, the bursar tells them. And so those institutions are saying, okay, we're going to give you that money. You've gotten this far. We're going to give you that money to see you cross the finish line. And you can imagine the impact that has on those students' attitude toward, toward the institution. They realize that, that that college doesn't just see them as check-writing machines. Um, it really does have their back. It really does want them to succeed, and that's crucial. Mm, yeah, and some of the changes that you're talking about just like that are not necessarily supremely expensive. Uh, let's dive into a couple more of those recommendations in just a second. But first, I want to remind our listeners that this, once again, is KCBS In-Depth. Today we're talking about college and why too many Americans are not managing to finish. Our guest is UC Berkeley public policy professor David Kirp. His new book is The College Dropout Scandal. So let's talk about uh, some of the success stories that you have in your book. Among them, I think that we can be proud to say here in California, or I guess a few of them are uh, from right here in California. One of the prime examples is uh, Cal State Long Beach. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what Cal State Long Beach is doing right. Well, what Cal State Long Beach is doing right is it is connecting all the dots in the community. It really is building on Long Beach pride. And so you have there, unlike any place else in the country that I know of, a, a real system of education, commitment to education that begins in preschool and goes all the way through K-12, community college and university. And those folks sit down together, hash out problems, build connections. The university is so committed to the community that it's easier 
if you're a graduate of Long Beach High, it's a lot easier to get into Long Beach State than if you're a graduate of one of the San Francisco suburbs. You might come with fancier credentials, but you're, you're less likely to get admitted. And, and that really is because the university sees itself as investing in the city's future and, and, and vice versa. By the way, those students, the local students, um, actually do better. Uh, than uh, students from elsewhere in the state and elsewhere in the country. Long Beach has become a very popular university. It's about the seventh most popular in the country in terms of the number of applications. And its graduation rates have soared. Um, it's 10 or 15 points higher than peer institutions, institutions with the same kind of, uh, kind of student enrollment. And there's been, along with that set of, uh, of community connections, a pretty single-minded focus on getting students through and getting them a good education. That has meant, for example, that there's a heavy investment in making sure that students can have access to the to the first courses, the prerequisite courses in their major, so that they're not sitting around. They're not they're not faced with what's called an impacted course. Um, that's a fancy dentist word I've always thought, but it, you know, what it means is that there's no room in the end. And if you can't take the course that you need to continue in the major, well, that's going to discourage you from going on. And so they've invested very heavily in making sure that that's where that those, that that situation does not arise. And so it sounds like we're talking here about just a bevy of small changes, uh, some easier to implement than others, but a lot of them uh, relatively simple, just a matter of having the focus, having the willpower. What do you think it's going to take at this point for universities at a broader scale to take this on more forcefully? What's standing in the way at this point? You got it right. Willpower is really the is really key because this is not brain surgery. These are not impossible things to do. They've been done lots of times. They don't have to cost a mint. And indeed, some of the universities I read about, including Long Beach and uh, Georgia State in Georgia and Central Florida, these are not states which spend a lot of money on higher education. They're doing really well. And and again, it really is about willpower. It's about leadership. It's about a willingness to say, okay, we've got a big problem with math because we're asking all these students to take college level algebra. Why are we doing that? Why aren't we asking those who are not going to go into STEM fields to take statistics instead? And why don't we rewrite the way in which those classes are taught so that they're not just lecture classes, but they really are lab classes? Well, all of that makes a lot of sense, and it's being done in some schools in the state. But it also means you run up against the the head of the math departments who are going to say, no, 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 this is the way we've always done it. Algebra is the queen of of whatever, of the the sciences. (laughs) Um, They actually do speak like that every once in a while. Um, and you got to go in and say, no, <laughs> you got to change because this is, this is not about doing things the way, you know, your grandfather's generation did. This is about doing things that are really useful to students, smart for students, and going to make it more likely that they will learn and that they will succeed. Um, that, again, it takes leadership, um, and, which is a hard commodity to come by. I think it also is going to take some pushing from outside. Some, and, you know, the state has been, the state of California has been doing that in, in, in eliminating pure remedial courses. Um, it's forced universities to rethink how they teach students because those remedial classes have been dead ends for, for many, many students in the community colleges and the state universities. Um, the state has set pretty ambitious goals and it's creeping up toward, toward those goals. It's got a good long ways to go, particularly when, with respect to trying to get students to graduate in four years. But, uh, 
uh, the energy is in the right direction here. So of, of, of all the states that I know about, um, I'm particularly encouraged by what's happening in California. All right. Well, uh, a lot of work being done then on that foot. But let's, in the last couple of minutes that we have left, uh, turn our attention instead to perhaps giving some advice to those who might be entering college soon or, or perhaps the parents of those who might be entering college soon. With all that you've put on the table so far in terms of the challenges that are facing students, in terms of the perhaps lack of support that uh, students are going to face at a lot of institutions, what should students be keeping in mind as they're deciding which colleges to apply to, which colleges to accept, and, and how they should be preparing before their freshman year? Well, the first thing I'd say to them is have a look at the data, and, and you can find it by looking at education results online educationresults.org, all the figures that, that you'd want to have about the college you're interested in, what's the overall graduation rate, how has it changed over recent years, what's the, you know, how, how do students who get financial aid do, how do minority students do, how does your school compare to others that you're thinking about, how does it compare to a bunch of schools that this organization, Education Trusts, is singled out as likely the university you want to go to. You learn a lot. Uh, about your chances of graduating before you ever show up. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is the key, from your point of view as a student, the key to success is being able, being comfortable about talking to your teaching assistants and to your professors, not the 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 fear that you're going to fail somehow, that you're going to be ridiculed, that leads you into a corner and you get a bad grade in your first paper and you're just convinced that, you know, there's no hope for you. That's a prescription for, for disaster. One of, the, one of the little secrets about higher education is that professors really like talking to students. The door is, the door is open and not just talking about grades, uh, talking about, you know, the subject matter, about ideas and about how to do better on the tests, how to learn from their failures. Same thing is true about from TAs and studying, finding a group of students who are, share your interests to study with and to work with rather than trying to go it alone. You do that if you connect up with other students, you connect up with, with faculty, and you know what you're getting into from the outset. I think that dramatically improves your chances of, uh, of, of getting a good education and getting a degree. Actually, I think that that's a really important point to underscore. It's it's really a revelation when you make it into the college or the professional world. And your first couple of years, you feel like the whole world is stacked up against you. And you realize at some point, oh, wait, no, like there's so many people out there that actually want to support me and want to see me succeed. And when you're in a position to support other people, you, you know, you, you, there's some joy that you can take in that in having the ability to support other people. And so I, I think that that's a message that really needs to make its way out to to more young people that are in a difficult place. Absolutely, you need to build a community, become part of a community um, of of peers, of classmates, of of others and the others who share your interests, um, and both giving and and getting support uh, are are again they're going to make your your college years more fun, more interesting, and uh, probably you know more fruitful. All right. Well, a positive note to end on, but still obviously a lot more work to be done. We have been speaking today to David Kirp. He is a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley. His new book is The College Dropout Scandal. Give it a read, everybody. Uh, David Kirp, thanks so much for being on KCBS In-Depth. Yeah, thanks for having me. Remember, you can find past episodes of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening.
You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 1069, KCBS.